0: Hello and welcome back to the Product Management Growth Through Failure podcast. This week I'm joined by my guest John Fontno. John is currently a Principal Product Manager at Lendio, founder of his two-year-old startup Path to Product and the author of several books. In this episode we talk about John's route into product, how we're both terrible at DIY but we still try, Path to Product, its mission and some failure along the way the writing of his most recent book, Never Assume, and John's most recommended assumption to avoid failure. So, let's get into it. John, thanks for joining me. Uh, podcaster, author, PM, founder, is there anything you can't do? <laughs>
1: um, there's a lot that I can't do.
0: <laughs> well, I'll believe it when I see it, because uh, from the outside looking in, you're, you're smashing it. Um Before we dive into growth through failure, and and thank you for joining me on the Product Management Growth Through Failure podcast, can you just tell us a bit about how you got into product?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the story from a lot of people are, you know, someone asked me to do product, didn't know what it was, or I fell into it, or, you know, something similar to that. I came from an engineering background. Mine was quite different. So it was 2016, I was doing work for Intel in their developer relations division. I was working with a lot of product managers and product leaders and kind of fell in love vicariously through working with them with the role of product and tried to make the transition into product. And it was hard. (laughs) Um, I had to learn a lot of tough lessons and actually make a side uh, pivot into a sales role at a SaaS company. Right. And eventually figure out how to make my pivot once I was in the SaaS firm into product from there. And that's really oversimplifying the story because it took many twists and turns throughout that, that process.
0: Yeah, that, that's really interesting, actually. I guess there was some bumps and mistakes and learnings throughout all that. You, you're right. I think it's a, a common story. I, I mean, I fell into product. I am, I am that guy, right? I, I took a graduate job. I landed on a graduate scheme in a SaaS business that had just been acquired. The product manager left. They were small. They went, "Hey, you want to give it a go?" Sure. What? Well, Barely knew what software as a service was, let alone product management. Right? And here I am, nearly seven years later, and I and I love it. But well, that, that's an interesting route. Um, well, what? I guess there is some resilience you you learn there. It's quite interesting that you kind of fixed your sights on it almost that you. You've if i'm reading it right you you saw it you liked it but we're finding it tough to break in i guess we'll get into path to product later but i guess maybe that's where you you're coming out from that angle but
1: yeah
0: what was that what was the, i guess the hardest thing in terms of breaking in um from from kind of not falling in and but knowing you wanted to do that how how you know, how hard was it
1: yeah, I mean, the, the hardest thing was just the, the ambiguity of it all. I mean, if I could try to unpack it for a little bit, it, you're sitting there wondering is it, a, is it a gap in skills? Is it like, is it a gap in education? Like, you really don't know where your gaps are because there's no roadmap to get there, right? Like, to be a project manager, it's pretty well known you go and get your PMP. Uh, to be a marketer, you can go get a marketing degree, but there, there's no certification that employers care about for product management enough nice. to you know no hire degree without experience or, or or there's yeah there's no degree um some some universities are, are building product curriculum now but it's still really early days and and who knows if employers will even recognize it as uh, an alternative like a viable alternative to experience yeah and so um that's kind of where I was it's like do i need my mba You need to take a bunch of courses, get certifications um, and and like just trying to figure out what my gaps were. And and it wasn't until I started asking those questions to recruiters that I started getting insight of where my gaps actually were. And it had nothing to do with the skills that I actually had and acquired because I was doing things like storyboarding and design thinking with our our software partners. I was very familiar with technology, working with like Intel's R&D team and how do we translate that into user value? For our software partners, and so there was a lot of transferable skills that wasn't getting across the table, right? Getting lost in the applicant tracking systems, and um, and so I think that's probably one of the biggest frustrations it was for me, and, and probably as more people try to get in from other roles or out of school, just not knowing the path to get there. And then secondary to that is like, what matters? Do I need to know how to write SQL queries? Do I need to write? How to, do I need to know how to code? Like what are the actual product skills that I need when I start the job to make me successful? And so I think it's definitely a one and two part problem.
0: Yeah. And I think you kind of constantly learning as well. I I mean, even now I, I, you know, I think I had those same reservations even falling into it, right. Kind of, you're trying to find your feet. And I remember thinking the same, like you, all of a sudden I was thrown into working with developers and literally in the you know, context of this podcast, every day almost felt like a failure at first in the sense that people were talking to me and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, I did a, I did a politics degree with international relations. My plan was always to join the military. Life happened. That didn't happen. And then I, I kind of fall into this role and I'm like, I've just come off the back of a law conversion, which is like a three-year law degree condensed into six months. And all of a sudden I'm in this software environment like you know developers like i've not really interacted with people like this before either and was falling heavily on my people skills but kind of massively aware of shortcomings on technical know-how um just understanding architecture um but i think actually there's so much about product that is about people that if you use those skills in the right way you can fill those gaps and learn and and fail and grow and you know, kind of repeat and, and you kind of learn what I learned through doing, right? So I, I would go to a senior engineer and kind of almost just sit with them and just listen, you know, and just absorb and ask really stupid questions. And I always say to kind of more you know, more junior PMs now is like there is literally no stupid question other than the one you don't ask because it yeah. doesn't get answered, right? And um but yeah, I mean I, I think we've probably experienced a similar thing but with totally different angles into it. Uh, which is which is really interesting, so moving into more about kind of growth and failure, failure as a topic or just failure does it scare you?
1: Um it used to, but I, I guess early in my career i I didn't know what I didn't know, and so I asked a lot of those dumb questions and um, like I remember certain times where... I would wait and try to like perfect this assignment that I had to turn in or this, you know, uh, deliverable that I had for, for management. It never failed. No matter how hard I tried, something was always wrong. And so, so something clicked very early where almost kind of like software iterations where you want to get it out early, get feedback and improve. And it just kind of sat with me that, well, two things happen if we don't try to go for perfection. We get feedback faster and we're seen as reliable because we're delivering something showing that we're being proactive and then we're actively soliciting feedback. And so I'd say pretty early in my career, I was pretty afraid of failure. And I think at times it comes up whenever the stakes are high that I don't want to fail. I think naturally we're people that want to succeed. Um, So I do think there's a constant reminder. We need to give ourselves of. um, you know, we're, we are not perfect. People are not perfect. Products are never perfect. And so expecting that of ourselves is um, a little irrational to some degree.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, and you actually stole my next question, which is exactly that in, in terms of has your attitude to failure changed over your career? And it's interesting you jump straight to that, because again, it's exactly my experience. You know, I remember... That role, roles before I started in in recruitment, which effectively a cold calling sales job. I remember mm. being terrified to pick the phone up, and again you learn you you kind of get some resilience. Um, but, but product was the same. You kind of someone says, "Hey, we should do this," and so you kind of lock yourself away, like really hammer and chisel, trying to get it perfect, and you pass it over, which in your head is perfect because you've kind of locked yourself away and you end up getting feedback that maybe isn't quite there. And you kind of, I think you take it harder at that point, but Mm -hmm. you start to kind of click that. Okay. If I, if I maybe open this up and say, Hey, what do you think about this earlier? Get the feedback in, edit, test, adjust, and then go again. You kind of, like you say, that iteration process with everything kind of helps you to learn. As you move along, I suppose it's—I guess it's classic agile waterfall without getting into processes, right? But you know, yeah. waterfall traditionally lock yourself away, you test it at the end, and hope it doesn't break. Whereas that iterative process with agile, and we definitely won't get into into that today because <laughs> uh, we'll we'll have a, a Twitter um, army after us if we if we talk too okay. much about process. I'm sure. Do, do you have the same? attitude to failure outside of work or, or, or learning from failure
1: outside of work you know I, I try to I have a family I'm married I have two kids and um, I don't know the way I grew up uh, I've always been kind of the mentality that I'm the one that's supposed to provide and protect and and those things that, that come with being a husband and a father and so <clears throat> you know, I can be hard on myself sometimes. We're like, I'm, I'm, I'm not the most handy guy. Like I work in a very white collar job and I wish I had more skills with my hands to fix the car, or, you know, fix things that break in the house. And, um, so I think some of that crosses over from professional life to personal life, Where there's a bit of imposter syndrome where we, we put these expectations on ourselves and when we can't do it or can't get it right, it's like, you know, what does my wife think of me? What do my kids think of me? kind of thing. And um, so yeah, I've definitely experienced it in my personal life, but, um, I think just taking time to reflect in general is, is helpful against that. Like I know the times where I've reacted to those things turned out negatively, but whenever I just kind of took a step back and thought about the situation critically, um, and like what, what skills could I bring to this situation or where can I lean on someone else, um, and just being real with myself about the situation, uh, yep. I tend to be less hard on myself, but, but yeah, definitely it, it crosses over for sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think we live the same lives, but across the pond, you know, I, uh, I'm married four kids and uh, like you say, what white collar job and my, um, my wife's family, they're all tradesmen, right? My her, her dad and her granddad and, you know, her brothers are all, are all tradesmen and all handy and, I remember when we, you know, when we first moved in together, and you know, I'm trying to put up shelves, and they're wonky. And you know, <laughs> Dad's coming in, he's taking the Mick out of me. Like, oh. But again, I kind of, I don't think, I, I don't think I ever thought about it, kind of about learning from failures, about in that, in that aspect. But actually, when I look back at it now, I'd consider myself pretty handy with certainly around kind of DIY around the house, and it is purely <laughs> through. Try, fail, what went wrong, okay, try again, you know and and so now we kind of bought a fixer upper last time, and we sold it, we did a lot of work to it. We've just bought another one now, we're about to start a kitchen, I'm petitioning my wife to let me fit fit the kitchen at the minute. Let's see whether I win that one or not, but you know, um you know I think sometimes you' just gotta jump in the deep end, right, and yep. Yeah. And kind of, I guess, sometimes expect that you're not going to nail it every time, but almost accept front on that there's going to be hard times, difficult things, things you're not going to do perfectly. But that almost recognizing up front that is the opportunity to learn and actually giving your the yourself the opportunity to do it by giving yourself the opportunity to start and try it first, if you, if you see what I mean.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I I love that mentality, right? Because we all learned how to walk. We all learned how to talk. And when we were kids, we weren't self-conscious. But when we're doing anything for the first time as adults, we, we have this, like, false assumption that we, need to, we should know how to do it when we've never done it before. And whether it's not asking for help out of, you know, um, arrogance or like whatever the, the, the character trait is that caused us not to ask for help um, or if it's assuming we should know how to do it. I don't think it's rooted in truth, you know, like we, if, but if we do take that approach of like, I'm going to try it, I'm going to see what the outcome is and I'm going to adjust until I get it right and make it a learning exercise. Mm-hmm. I think, I think you start developing a better attitude towards those new experiences um, I know when I have a better attitude, my wife is happier. My kids are happier. <laughs> so, um, I feel you. Uh, so I'm, I'm learning to, to take that learn it all mentality versus I should know it all. Uh, even if it makes me look silly or cost me a few more dollars in the long run. Yeah.
0: Do, do you think that imposter syndrome plays a, um, a role there in, in the sense that I, I think there's a bit of ego or arrogance, or maybe like you say, um, that stops maybe asking for help but do you think there's also that internal struggle at times where you're going i can't do that and, and so you're kind of prohibiting your growth in that sense by kind of telling yourself you can't do it
1: yeah i i definitely think that happens um i i would like to think it's more of uh, an internal question of trade-offs these days where it's maybe i could but is the learning curve worth me learning it yeah um but but to your point i i do think there are situations where we cast self-doubt or have imposter syndrome for things that we feel like we should know how to do and just say like man i i don't think i'm equipped for that or i don't think i could learn that i've definitely hit that wall a few times and i don't know it's it's not a it's not a fun headspace to be so, yeah. I don't no, know what your, your experiences with that have
0: been, but yeah, I, I think, I think again, early on in my career, you kind of, I think especially when you fall into it, into product, you kind of constantly have this imposter syndrome of, can I do this? Even even when you move roles, and and I think that's maybe natural. You kind of move to a new role, and I remember like just before my notice runs out, I'm always thinking, "Oh my god, what have I done? Like, can I do this job? What are these people going to think of me?" And I think, you know, and I'm a non-technical product manager, so I can't write code. I've tried to learn Python a few times. You know, I can just about get the script to spit out "Hello World," right? And <laughs> there's times where I think. Oh, do I need to be more technical, but then actually and i and I guess you kind of put that barrier that imposter syndrome barrier up, like you know I know that's my weakness, and I try and fix it, and inevitably life gets busy, I kind of fall off the wagon but i was I was listening to a podcast with um I think it was Jason Knight's podcast with Irene new who yep. um, has her business which has just totally escaped my head um skip level. That's the one. Skip level, Um, and I listened to that podcast, and I thought that's what I need, you know. And I'm, you know, trying to do that at some point. But I think that was a bit of an eye opener for me, kind of listening to Irene say, "You don't need to code to be technical," but kind of everything up to that point for kind of six years of being a product manager, I thought I need to learn how to code. I'm going to sign up to Udemy course. I'm going to learn Python not even know whether Python is the best language to learn (laughs) for what I was trying to do, right? Um, But there was always just that barrier. And I think maybe as well, it interests me, but it doesn't really kind of grab me in enough as well. And then I start to question other things surrounding that. So, yeah, I think imposter syndrome can kind of prohibit your growth um, and stop you from maybe jumping in deep end at times. But I think generally I'm pretty good at just throwing myself off the diving board um and you know like even with the diy and things like that right i try um but there's definitely times where i've failed and um i think sometimes growth doesn't always have to be in the right in the same area right so mm-hmm. that example of being technical right i've learned i tried to learn python a few times okay failed Actually, like I said, listen to Irene, that's not the thing I'm trying to do. I'm trying to become more technical, but actually I'm doing it in the wrong way. And so the kind of growth opportunity there was not necessarily learning to code. Because actually learning to code doesn't really bring me anything for from what I need it for. Yeah. Being more technical, i.e. what Irene is talking about and what she's doing with skip level is what I need to kind of bring into my job to improve me as a, as a product manager and kind of push on and, um, be more technical, you know, uh, it, uh, exactly how she puts it. So the growth opportunity is sometimes hidden, I guess is what I'm saying.
1: Totally. Uh, it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with aspiring PMs trying to make that transition is you don't know what you don't know. And like, I think that's why it's so important to ask for help and to ask people that have done it. Like I know she gave some advice around like having someone technical, you can go to and and just ask questions to like, what would be helpful for you if I knew this (laughs) Yeah, Um, and and kind of curating your own learning and and leveraging other people's insights to do that. And I, I thought that was kind of genius advice.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, you wrote a book, which is pretty cool, pretty big deal, Um, and congratulations, Um, I I bought it very early, I was very lucky to have early access to it, thank you very much, Um, I have a page folded down here, which is right next to me, and we're on page 12 of the introduction, and you say, some say you learn more from your failures than your successes, and I agree, that's why I've dedicated an entire book to sharing some of the costliest assumptions you can make. What would you say your costliest assumption is and how did you learn from it?
1: Oh man, that's a good question. Um, I'll, I'll pick one of two. So I think the first one kind of goes to chapter one of the book. Never assume you're correct. And I think I think it dovetails nicely from the conversation we just had, where in my very first product management role, we had uh, one UX designer for six product teams, and I, I had done some UX research and some UX design, so I kind of had some skill set there. Definitely not an expert in that field, but um, I was doing some research on a problem space. I had a mock up of how we could solve the problem that we prioritized. And I brought it to our senior designer, my director of product, Dev and they just ripped into it. It poked all the holes of what was wrong with it. And I felt like such a failure. I, I felt like an imposter right off the bat. Like I should have known these things, I should have gotten these things right. And so I'd say, like one of the most costly assumptions was not soliciting feedback early enough in the process to where I didn't become so like emotionally attached to the thing that I had built. Yeah. Um, so I'd say costly failure, but also like very invaluable learning early on. There was actually a costly failure that like led to revenue loss. (laughs) Um, very not that long after that experience (laughs) where, um, Me and one of our developers assumed that our APIs were set up to pass certain data to the front end. And we didn't anticipate having to refactor the API. And so we went along with, you know, testing and validating solutions to this problem that we knew that we had or the customer had, assuming things were in place with our, our API to do what it needed to do. And it was not the case. We got time. We got down to development, and we had a bunch of shared resource problems, and things were time-boxed based on, like, this is the, the window that you have to do things. We had to be very good about scoping and planning. And, um, yeah, it, it made the project go too far out of scope. We couldn't do the work, and, and we lost some clients because of it. So, um, yeah, I'd say that was probably the, one of the more costly assumptions. That was a shared assumption between me and our dev lead.
0: Hey, I think we've all been there you know they uh and I think that was why I think your book really spoke to me um because I think I remember early in my career assumptions were kind of at the heart of everything I was doing i like I said before I didn't really know um kind of what was going on around me to any Great level of detail, and it was certainly a source of falling short in in areas and i don't think um, i don't think it was always like a full on failure, so it took a while i think, and like a really good product leader to kind of coach that in me that kind of you know where are you where are you getting these this data from and i'm saying you know i i'm not i'm kind of assuming and then you kind of click and you know we were looking at the fact that we were really driving at user centricity then and you start to increase your connection with users and assumptions start to fall off but i'd be interested if you think that actually assumptions is maybe one of the biggest areas of failures in product
1: i think it is and i think the type of assumptions that get us in trouble are the ones that are blatant and outright yeah in one breath, we have to make assumptions to some degree, right? The data that we use, we may have good data, but it's historical data. The, yeah. the historical data that told Airbnb what their forecast should be going into the year 2020 held, held no resemblance of what the future would be because of COVID, right? Exactly. And so, so we can make assumptions on good data and maybe we can get good at anticipating macro factors that could blow up historical data, but like we can only use what we have. But I I think the problem is, is when we don't look for what we have or we don't have data and we're basing it on blatant assumptions that are based on nothing but a hope and a prayer. That's what gets us in trouble. Uh, and, And what I really wanted to call out that we should avoid is just because you have a good idea doesn't mean it's going to be you know a million or billion dollar idea in the market or just because your competitor's doing something doesn't mean that you should do it or that you know why they did it or what results it was bringing (laughs) yeah Um, so so that's my 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 whole if i could like sum it up in in one statement is um, always ask why you're doing something and have some type of solid qualitative and quantitative data to back up those decisions and you'll
0: be a lot safer than not. I, I agree. And again, you stole my next question, which was, you know, <laughs> is there ever a time where it's okay to make assumptions with the goal of learning from it? If it doesn't succeed, I guess slightly different in the sense that with the goal of it kind of giving you growth and learning from it. But I think you're right. There's in product, we're kind of on the edge, I think, at times between good data both qual and quant that we can use but there's still that element i think of i I think i call it gut feeling a lot as a product manager that you kind of data is great and i really kind of subscribe to data informed as opposed to data led because for me there's always that element of kind of gut feeling um you know maybe maybe some of the qual data is a bit stronger than than the quant data maybe suggests and you kind of lean towards that so i think there is always that gap for Assumptions to help you, kind of. I guess so. You're not always at an impasse because sometimes I find you can just stare at the data too long, right? And totally. you're trying to second guess it. And sometimes you kind of just got to jump in and say, I guess it's hypothesizing to a certain extent as well. To say, let's give this a go, and we'll see where we get to. We'll we'll
1: monitor the metrics. Here's the key metrics for this. Let's see what happens. Right. So um, I love that you use the term hypothesize, right? Because I think most people in their schooling at some point learn the scientific method. And a lot of times when we talk about product and we make we make it analogous to, to science or using the scientific method, we start with hypothesizing. But in reality, there's a step before that, and it's observation. Yeah. You don't make hypotheses from something you made up while taking a shower. Like mm-hmm. you, you, You need to make an observation, whether it's with a client qualitatively. Quantitatively through data, whether it's you know metrics that you're looking at or usage analytics or whatever it may be, and then you could form a hypothesis as to why it's happening. But then you need to go and validate it, right? And or test it to see if it's valid or invalid. And so that that that's the point that I'm really trying to drive home is those hypotheses should be based on something. But you shouldn't assume that just because it's your first gut reaction at the hypothesis that it's correct. You should go do everything that you can within reason, resource and time constraint to go and test those assumptions based on the level of risk that they carry. Yeah,
0: I I couldn't have put it better myself. Um, Writing a book is, I imagine, challenging. I've not written one. I'm not sure there's any plans to write one soon. Uh, but who knows? Um, but there must have been some pretty interesting moments where, you know, you reread a chapter. Maybe you thought that doesn't quite flow. It doesn't quite work. What would you say were your biggest learnings right in the book?
1: Oh, man. Um, I'll jokingly say that I shouldn't have written it because <laughs> every time I catch myself making some of those same assumptions, I feel like a big hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> um but but in the actual writing process um it, it was just trying to validate like treating it like a product validating that i had the most resonant and impactful topics um, i think some of the topics even changed that i was going to go with i don't remember what they were frankly yeah <laughs> but um yeah, but but like it got I, thrown away. it's like trying to make sure that it's something that would be valuable right and that that would resonate and so i'd say like any product i I try to treat the book like a product where i'm not trying to like exclude my own thoughts and experiences but include others as well and, and kind of learn use that as an opportunity to learn from them but also make sure that it's something that's going to be representative of the people that actually read it. So it resonates and it it can be beneficial to a broader audience.
0: Absolutely. If you could pick one assumption out of the book and kind of pass that on to a new product manager, say what would your one be? I know what mine is. What, what let's see whether we get the same. What would yours be?
1: Um, It would be chapter seven. Never assume that you're aligned. Um, and, and I, because I think that one takes care of a lot of things, right? Like if, if you're, if you're trying to assume that you're, or if you're trying to avoid assumption that you're aligned, you're naturally going to put yourselves in position to get your own thoughts challenged, um, get, uh, get challenged on the assumptions you're making around development, revenue, forecasting, et cetera, and so on, and, and I think it's the hardest to get it right because we could lock ourselves away, like you, you mentioned earlier, and try to make decisions, whether it's by ourselves or with our immediate product team, but at the end of the day, like you could develop the best product, but if no one knows that it exists, if no one knows where to get it, how much it is, and how it's going to benefit them, the product doesn't matter to the market at all. And so you need other people in the company, sales, marketing, support, to make your product successful. And if you're not aligned on what that thing is, your chances of success diminish greatly.
0: Yeah, that's a great one, actually. Um, And I think you articulated that really well. And I think I was going to say mine is actually your first chapter. Never assume you're correct. Um, Because, but I I think you've... Articulated within Chapter Seven, and, and never assume you're aligned. Actually, that there's an element of, of Chapter One in there, right? You know, you you can't go into the, those alignment meetings just kind of pull in a china shop, right? That it's my way or the highway, right? That that's not alignment, right? Yeah. Um, It'll but be I think the highway. It will be the highway. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think for me, um, yeah, never assume you're correct. I think going back to kind of early career. That one spoke to me um, in the sense that because I didn't know what I was doing, because I was locking myself away, thinking things were perfect, you know, it was so easy just to think I was right all the time. Um, And, and, you know, certain organizational structures, maybe sometimes you don't get that feedback at an early enough stage and you kind of just blunder on. And then at some point, you know, it kind of all comes tumbling down. You go, wow, I got that really wrong, you know, Um, which is, from, a, from this podcast from growing from failure is a great thing, but you know, there's then obviously rebuilding to do. And, um, yeah, that one really spoke to me, but I, I, I think that never, never assume you're aligned, you know, so much of taking chapter one into that is a big part of, of that and, and kind of driving forward together. And I think one, one thing I talk about a lot, um, in my day job is, um, from past experiences there's sometimes an us and them mentality between product and, and development and I yeah. think you know never never assume you're aligned obviously there are different areas of the business and product endeavor just a, a part of it but actually I think a culture and and driving at a one team mentality can help so much with alignment and, and it doesn't mean to say that you have to negate it and that's it it's done because we're one team and hey you know everything's all sunshine and rainbows. That, that's not what I'm saying. But, you know, it, taking that bit out of it actually creates the space, I think, to, to find the alignment yeah, much easier. I agree with that. Last one on the book. Um, you called it Never Assume 10 Fatal um, Assumptions Great Product Managers Never Make would you say every great product manager has made those assumptions and learned from them to become great?
1: And and it's a bit tongue in cheek because we continue (laughs) to make, we continue to make those assumptions, especially as we grow in our career, we get, we, I won't say we do get, but we have a tendency to want to get lazy and feel like we don't have to go through the rigor of certain processes or, you know, we become experts in our field and we rely on our instinct and gut a lot more. And I, I just think it's natural for humans to get lazy about things. And, and some of that is the rigor behind our decisions. And it leads us to making those assumptions again that get us in trouble. But, um, but to your point, like, I think if we can keep those, keep those things at the forefront of our mind to avoid making those assumptions, then, then the outcomes will be great.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point about, um, I guess it's complacency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think you're right. I think as you as you kind of climb the ladder, you know, you spend longer in in the field. You almost catch yourself sometimes, right, and go, "Oh, what am I doing?" You know, or or, or actually, you don't catch yourself, and the kind of failure happens again, and it's like. What, what are you doing? You know, how did I make that mistake? And it's definitely through complacency. Maybe trust you, you know, going back to talking about gut, it's certainly a factor, but sometimes if you put too much on it, we can all be wrong. We're human, right? And when and yeah. you, I mean, you yeah. fall on those assumptions too, too much and you lean on them, sometimes you're, you get it badly wrong. Yeah. So you're a founder. You started Path to Product um can you tell us a bit about the vision for path to product
1: yeah uh, the, the vision actually started before path to product so me and a buddy who's a full stack developer he's, he's my neighbor uh, we actually started a company called job ready and, and the vision was that anybody without experience in a role should have an opportunity to get their shot at that role and obviously that's a, that's a big thing to chew off. (laughs) Um, And so some life happened and it led to um, needing to figure out how we're going to, we were going to get a product built and decided through some advice to focus in on product management specifically versus trying to, you know, swallow the ocean. And I thought it made sense because it's one of the most ambiguous career paths to get into And it's what I'm doing in my professional life. And the thing that I struggled with in making a transition. So that's, that's where the, the impetus of it came from is my own pain point of like, I knew I could do it, but I wasn't getting a shot. And it took me two years of trying to get my shot. And um, I, the vision of it is that people will not have to feel that pain anymore. Uh, because there will be an actual path to product.
0: Well, well, how eloquently put that's, that's good. You know, actually I had a call the other day from a friend who was talking about a very similar idea of, of your original idea uh, of how do you get started? Um, Mm -hmm. whether he does anything with it, who knows? You may have a competitor in the market. Um, I know from starting a side hustle myself and uh, as a failed founder, there's a lot of learning and a lot of growth that you get from the experience. Um, What would you say your biggest kind of failure and growth opportunity in path to product has been so far?
1: Oh man, I'd say the biggest learning came from trying to do job ready before path to product Um, and just learning how how much hubris I had when it came to like building a a product and thinking it would be a lot easier than what it was. And I think it led to not smooth sailing, but smoother sailing with path to product, um, where kind of starting with the assumption that building good products that work in the market is really, really hard. Hmm. Um, and, and basically the first nine months. Of Path to Product, there was no product. It was completely concierge trying to test out, you know, what, like the, the hypothesis that we had to start with was there has to be a common thread in product management that, like, there's a certain set of skills, hard skills that, that hold true regardless of what geography you're in, industry you're in, company. Like, people say product management is different everywhere you go, and I think that's true but I, I think it could be cultural. It could be procedural, but I, I just had this feeling that there had to be a, a common set of skills that that held true no matter what. And so that was the first bit of validation was trying to figure out what those were. And then could we actually package a learning opportunity and a teaching opportunity for those skills in a way that you don't just hear it like a, your typical Udemy course, right? You yeah. hear it, you see it being done and then you go do it yourself and you document it so you can prove it yeah. and that was that was the first thing we were trying to we were trying to prove out um, and through that I mean we learned a ton about what worked what didn't work um, as people were creating their projects how was it perceived by hiring managers uh, what did we need to tweak so I, I'd say just there, through the different iterations of trying to prove out or Invalidate certain assumptions about what we were trying to build there was a ton of, a ton of learnings along the way, but it was it was so low tech that like it was so easy to pivot because we we hadn't built anything foundational it was all just yeah. learning with Google slides and youtube videos <laughs> but,
0: but I think that's so interesting because I'd say actually the biggest mistake I made was. I didn't actually apply everything I do in my day job to my side hustle. I kind of jumped straight in to building the product, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with a co-founder. Um, he, he has his own creative agency. So we kind of built, we used his team, and we just jumped in and started writing code. I had a good idea. I, you know, I still think it was a relatively good idea. It was about helping people find historical tweets that maybe that didn't sit with their current belief system and and finding them and erasing them from history because that no longer kind of fits with who they are but i just jumped in i didn't validate i didn't i didn't test the hypothesis i didn't prototype and test the prototype and i kind of bounced it around a few mates over a beer and they went that sounds cool and i built it and and it just we we scanned over a million tweets uh on the free version oh. within like a few weeks but the conversion just wasn't there. and um, But I think the biggest mistake there was exactly you were low tech, you were validating, you were getting tons of learning. you know, but There was no data coming back in, qual or quant, um, My career has largely been B2B, so B2C was a whole new angle as well. And, yeah. you know, it, it was just kind of everything we've been talking about about assumptions and things like that every mistake that I've kind of learned from in my career and don't do in my day job i made with the side hustle it was so um kind of counterintuitive to everything that i i do but um i learn learned from it and and next time i do it, it you know i will exactly you know as i see you doing on twitter often and getting people's feedback and thoughts and everything I'll be investing massively in in learning and and before testing hypotheses uh, and doing what I do in a day job for my own thing. So, um, yeah. Yesterday, I think it was, or maybe this morning, the Twitter timeline at, at six o'clock in the morning when my kids jump on my head sometimes makes me look <laughs> uh, look at the timestamps a bit funny. You announced the the path to Product Marketplace. Tell us a bit about what that is and, and, and what you want that to become.
1: Yeah. So <clears throat> Path to Product took on a few different iterations. I'd say the second big iteration was um, we used Mighty Networks as a community platform to host the course. And it worked well. There was some community engagement. That's what we were trying to test. Is did community engagement actually help with conversion of the um, completing the course. And we probably did a lot of things wrong with the community, but, um, we, what I found was that there were pe- enough people finishing the projects and finishing the course, making their projects, but they weren't doing anything with it. Like I even gave advice in the videos of, you know, post this on your LinkedIn, share it on social media. But a lot of people don't have big social media followings and aren't well networked and using social media only really works or professional media, if you're well-networked. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so the, the, the idea came of, well, if this is a problem, I can't solve that problem for them of helping them network. But maybe I can in a way where I can leverage my network or build a network of employers into Path the Product to where anyone looking for junior PM talent knows that this is the place to come where it's the least risky place to find junior product talent. That's well-trained, that experienced PMs can come on and rate and review their projects. So you have credibility, not just from the platform, but from people that you would hire in a heartbeat, they're saying that this person is good. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so using that social proof and the projects as proof of their skills and capabilities, we wanted to leverage that whole setup to build a marketplace to connect the talent with the employers in a very specific type of role and that's yeah, what I, the marketplace release was was geared to do
0: yeah i think um i think i tweeted you and said game changing and i i truly feel like actually that is a game changing um part of the product in the sense often I've done Twitter spaces and and people contact me sometimes and trying to get into product and like you uh, uh, back when you were trying to get in, finding it difficult and I think one thing I've kind of been consistent in saying is that you you don't need to be a product manager to illustrate that you can be a product manager, right? And there's so much you can do to illustrate product thinking and I always say to people... Do you have a product idea? And sometimes they say yes. Sometimes they say no. I said, okay, you don't need to go build it, but go, go get in the problem space. Do the research. You know, understand how you might solve that problem. You know, learn how to use Figma. Throw some wireframes together. It doesn't have to be amazing, but actually mm-hmm. show you've thought about it. Or if they say no, okay, what's your favorite product? You know, they they always come up with whatever their favorite product was. How would you improve it? They always have a way that it can be improved. Go and think about how that could be a feature. How would you go about what would be the process of thinking about it, validating it? And actually what I feel like you've done is take that and build something akin to that into the product where actually you're bringing eyeballs to it as well. And I guess that leads me on to my next question, which is more from a aspiring PM side of things of how valuable do you think it is actually that they have that opportunity to kind of fail and learn, but also add that kind of learning to their portfolio that is visible to employee employers, sorry. And, and kind of they're constantly building a portfolio, I guess, but also learning from the comments that are coming back. I mean, how central is that going forward to, to path to
1: product? Uh, I mean, it's, It, that's what it is, right? Like to, to your point, like that's, that's what the whole platform is set up to do is to, you can't replicate everything, right? You're not working with developers. You're not working with designers. You're not working cross-functionally, but as much as possibly can be simulated, we're simulating. And, you know, I had uh, a few aspiring PMs that have been helping me build that, the product. And one of them just got hired as a senior product manager. And hadn't held a product manager role before, but got a senior PM role because of the experiences she had. And I just think it's powerful as, as we put these projects and example projects in front of hiring managers and saying, like, this person did this without any experience other than what they got here. Yeah. And I mean, I got feedback like. And this person, regardless if it was just an associate PM or just a PM role, this person would go to the top of my list because they checked all these really critical boxes that, you know, a lot of, a lot of times you, you don't, people coming into product roles don't have the skills to know how to do some of these core, these core things. And so to your point, like the the ability to have a systematic way to say like when I started a company I'm going to get a product or a part of a product that I'm responsible for. How do I identify the problem space within what I'm responsible for? How do I prioritize against that problem space? And then how do I go validate at some level of scale that I've prioritized the right thing? And then how do I validate the solutions from the early phases down to the later phases to make sure that we're actually delivering likable, desirable, and usable value into the market? And then how do I make sure that that's ready for, you know, collaborating with the design team in real life, but how do I make sure that's ready for design and ready for development um, through like detailed requirements at the end? But also there's a part in there where um, I kind of teach what are some of the core things that your cross-functional stakeholders are going to expect or want to know from you And then how do you present that information early on to them and and get practice conveying that message to your cross-functional peers and anticipate based on what we're launching, what departments would actually care about this. And then how do I speak to that thing that I believe they would care about in a way that can help solicit conversation to make sure that we're aligned going into the launch.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. And I think, you know, I think you touched on a few things there, you know, landing on the ground on day one and certainly something i learned very early on and like i said at the beginning i lent hard on my people skills uh, right back at the start of my career and still do to a certain extent but that ability to kind of um, change your message the same message but put it into a different context for those different stakeholders cross-functionally and and make sure that you're delivering the right message at the right time is so critical and i think you know the aspiring pms that are coming onto path the product are, are getting that in abundance through those um uh, tasks or um you know the, the, those exercises that 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 are set through it so great job i think i think the mission and the vision is is fantastic i i am a massive supporter in it i i think regardless of um kind of what people's backgrounds are i think everybody has the ability to learn and actually I've been surprised by people in the past that I, you know, had no experience, and they come in and they just they make such a huge difference. So um, I think you're doing a great thing exposing that talent to, to to the market and hopefully helping people on with their career and, and giving back. So um, huge huge ovation for for you and and the, and the team at Path to Product, and hope it hope it goes from strength to strength. Thanks, Mark. No problem. So. Last on the agenda for today is is what what we call pay it forward on um growth through failure podcast. So um a previous randomized guest has has left their um advice for how how you can grow through failure or adversity. And the advice on this one is to take ego out of it, a topic we've talked about today, and allow humbleness to find the root cause of the failure to allow for true growth. So there you go John. Take that one away with you. I think you're probably one of the most humble people I've, I've met anyway, but um, I know that through all your endeavors, you have had adversity and learned from it. Um, thank you so much for your time. This has been fascinating. Good luck with it all. Like I said, big supporter across the pond here in the UK. Um, before we go, where can people keep up to date? All things John, never assume path to product and everything you're going to go and do in the future.
1: Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I'm pretty accessible. You can find me on LinkedIn. Just type in John Fontno; It uh, should come right up uh, Pat, um, on Twitter at Product Font. Pretty active there. And then uh, you can find me on Path to Product too. Uh, I'm the one on the other side of the chat button. So there's no chat bot. There's no paid service. It's just me on my cell phone. So as long as I'm not sleeping, I'll respond there too.
0: Great. Thanks, John. Have a, have a great day and uh, we'll leave it there.